Hello and welcome back to Equity, a podcast all about the business of startups where we unpack the numbers and the nuance behind the headlines. My name is Alex and I'm here with the Friday crew. In one corner, we have Mary Ann Azevedo. Hello, Mary Ann. How are you? Hey, Alex. How are you? I am 24 hours away from being on vacation for a week, so I am almost amazing, but I'm trying to avoid senioritis to complete my tasks for the week. That's how I am. I am excited for you and jealous at the same time. Oh, I shall revel in your jealousy because <laughs> I am so excited. I'm going to sleep for a week. It's going to be great. Awesome. We also have Natasha Moscarenas here. Natasha, how are you doing? How's your week? You know what? I'm feeling really lucky this week because I'm stable in my new apartment. This mm. job is feeling good. And I don't know. I'm just appreciating the present for like the first time in a long time because I'm stable. Yeah. Moving is such a nightmare. And you've had a couple of moves, frankly. So I've moved every year for the the past like seven years and I'm going to probably move next year too, but like for the next 12 <laughs> months, I will be very happy. And that's that. <laughs> oh man. If I ever have to move again, I think I'm just going to surrender and go live in a tent. It's just, it's too, I, I have too many things now. Like you accumulate so much crap. Yeah. Oh, it's pretty painful. And speaking of accumulating things, this script got long, so we had to be pretty selective. And so some things that we wanted to get in didn't quite make it, but we do have a packed show for you, including deals of the week from Team Apt, Muon Space, which I believe I'm pronouncing correctly, and Founder Path. Then we're going to talk about bets and what is paying off or not, thinking about Axios, ByteDance, and House with a U. And then we're going to talk about things that aren't going so well. I'll talk about losses in the context of SoftBank and Coinbase. So one VC, one operating company, but there's a share connection that we'll get to when we get there. To kick things off though, Natasha, we're talking about Nigerian fintech. Yes. So as we all know, fintech in Africa are kind of like peanut butter and jelly. And especially during the downturn we've seen over the past few months, Africa has done really well as a continent in terms of landing new deals for its startups. But this week we learned that Team Apt raised a $50 million round. And more interestingly, it was led by QED Investors, a U.S fintech-focused VC firm. A big deal, Marianne, QED is like synonymous with fintech investing. It's a big deal because it's their first in the continent, I believe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. A few months back, I think it was, Tage wrote about their intent to invest more in the region. And they even went so far as hiring, I think, two different people to lead those investments, which is kind of unusual, but validates how serious they are about investing and backing African startups. So yeah, they're putting their money where their mouth is and they're leading this round, which is, I think, a 50 million plus round, right? Over 50. Over 50. Okay. Yeah. Okay. okay. So Natasha, now the world of fintech, as we all know, is huge. So I'm, I'm curious, what is TMAPT doing in the world of fintech? Are they a neobank? Are they making a remittances platform? Is it a way to mine digital gold? What is it? <laughs> so basically it is another one of those business payments and banking platforms. But what you need to know is that it really serves small and medium-sized businesses across Nigeria and then allows them to access different features to manage how they work. So it can be working capital, it could be business expansion loans or business management tools. And it has about 400,000 customers that we know up to date. So pretty big company and it processes a 100 billion annualized run rate transaction value. So I mean, Big company. Wow. Not surprising that a US-based investor caught attention of that and decided for that to be its entrance into the content instead of like a pre-seed with not much proof. <laughs> I thought also it was very interesting that it was bootstrapped for four years before it raised its first round of venture capital in 2019 and says it's profitable and that it's been growing 300% annually. So that's pretty impressive. I mean... Yeah, Alex, it kind of checks off our box, right? Like of, yeah. of the bootstrapped coming back for VC right. funding. Yes, it, it does. It does track. We were 
talked about what is bootstrapping and often companies will bootstrap for a while and then later on take on capital at a much lower rate of dilution because they've built so much value before they take on external funds. Here's an example of that. Marianne, though, whenever someone says profitable, what do we say? We say, how are you defining that? And then yes. they say, we're not going to tell So I'm excited that they have generally strong economics and kind of accounting results, but I'm very curious as always, is that adjusted EBITDA, free cash flow, operating cash flow, and you know, the equivalent of gap net profit. I don't know, but I think they did over a hundred million in revenue last year, according to our reporting. So here's QED walking into Africa, writing a big check, but into a big company. And I think it just goes to show how much work has been done in Nigeria and other kind of leading African countries to build material fintech businesses. And I just pulled it up. The Nigerian GDP is like $430 billion. So it's a relatively large economy. I know we think about Africa often as an aggregate, a number of countries, but like, I think individually, we forget sometimes how big these country GDPs are. Right. Speaking of things going up. Let's talk about space. Alex, this week you're going to be talking to us about a startup that wants us to create custom Earth observation satellites. Can you please explain it? Yeah. So, okay, we're going into space. So I'm going to wave my hands a little bit and try to explain this to everybody. But essentially, one of the biggest things that satellites do is not just bouncing communication signals back and forth so we can use, you know, modern communications technology. But one thing that satellites do a lot is take images. And taking images of the Earth in varying resolutions, varying frequencies, in varying types of photography, using that term loosely, is an enormous business. And we're all familiar with the examples of like the first hedge funds that were like tracking parking lot data at malls to get a handle on consumer retail spend ahead of government <laughs> numbers. But now satellites are used to like look at massive solar arrays on the earth to see where they're broken or to track methane leaks, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so many people have many different use cases for what they need. So they have two options, build something themselves or go buy something off the shelf. And often one's too expensive and one's not a good fit. So Muon Space wants to make a kind of like build a bear for satellites. You show Ooh, up, okay. they have stuffing, they have oh little, God, little bear carcasses. analogy. Sorry, that's a good one. <laughs> I've never actually been to a build a bear, but I've heard about <laughs> They're them. They're amazing. So, I can vouch. Really? They're amazing. Can you build non bears? Yes. Yeah, you yes. can. Okay. So, yes. okay. I can like build an alligator. <laughs> Sure. Maybe. I don't yeah. know, but. All right. All right. Sorry. This is what happens when we don't think about our analogies before the show starts. <laughs> but the point is uh, the company has the nuts and bolts of a satellite to build. And therefore you can build something with them. That's much more quick. And you don't have to build your entire own satellite design and manufacturing arm. That is, I think, a pretty smart and slick way to go about it. I'm curious how often you guys end up talking about satellites in your reporting, because it comes up more frequently in my world than I would think. But I presume the fintech edtech worlds are relatively terrestrial. Yeah. Yeah. I don't really talk much about that sort of thing in my articles. I did live in Houston for a long time. So, yes. you know, have the space tie there with NASA. But that's the extent of, I guess, my knowledge about <laughs> In the piece, like the writer, oh, Devin, <laughs> the writer, Devin Coldway brings up how there's like a lot of opportunities to be using this, obviously, with climate. And I think mm -hmm. I see so many of these newer funds out there who are focused on climate. I guess I would never think of this as a climate company, but this could probably fit into that, too. So I imagine the intersections here are pretty interesting, given just like the focus that's being put on our world right now from venture capital investment. Absolutely. And Devin's piece goes into what the first couple of satellites are going to use to capture data, which is going to be microwaves as opposed to like the traditional cameras that we think of that we use for like taking a picture of a continent or whatever. And that is specific use cases. There's also like wildfire tracking in this. It's really, really cool. The company has raised 25 million and it's just kind of another one of those rounds in a sector that I just can't get enough of. I've covered Albedo Space yes. a couple of times. They're trying to do really high quality images from low earth orbit, which has its own 
intricacies and issues with refueling and air drag and so forth. Anyways, all the stuff is the coolest. And I, I love seeing startups not just making software, but also making, you know, flying robots in space. How cool is that? It is I know. cool. It's kind of like the MVP of something like this versus the MVP of... I don't want to put anyone on blast, but it's just, it's such a difference in scale and impact. And that is so cool to see. But you know, it's just as cool as putting Build-A-Bear satellites into space. It's helping B2B SaaS companies secure debt financing to limit equity dilution when they raise funds. <laughs> yes. According to Marianne, at least. <laughs> and yeah. me. I think it's cool. Yes, okay, sorry. Yes. Maybe I thought you were being sarcastic. <laughs> no, no, no. Very, very true. I wrote about this week of an Austin-based company called FounderPath. And exactly as Alex said, they offer debt to B2B SaaS startup founders. And, you know, this is not the first company to do this, right? We have a lot of companies that have emerged over the past few years that are doing similar things and trying to help SaaS startups avoid dilution. We've got Pipe, we've got CapChase. FounderPath says it claims that it's different in its terms. It says it offers mm. more founder-friendly terms. It gives founders a longer period of time to pay back the funds, like 12 to 48 months, and that it doesn't charge fees. It says that its interest rates are more favorable. So, over the past four months, unsurprisingly, the company's business has grown quite a lot as more, you know, the venture funding scene has kind of dried up. More founders are looking to debt as an alternative. So their business has really grown a lot this year, and they just secured $135 million in debt wow. and $10 million in equity to keep it going. And also just one other point that I think is very interesting. They started out helping just bootstrapped founders, and now they're moving also into helping companies that have raised money, but to a certain point. Okay, Marianne, so FounderPath is in the same vein as companies that take a look at your annual recurring revenue and go, okay, we know this is going to be pretty stable for the next year, and then we'll loan you X percent of that, and then there's a set of terms, and it's repaid over a period of time. No fees seems like a strange thing when you're hiring capital, because you tend to pay a fee when you hire funds. So how do they make money? Is it interest? Well, they do charge interest, you know, they do, but it's a, they claim it's at a lower rate. And also they say they will give up to 50% of ARR and upfront okay. cash, which is quite a lot. Also, the backstory behind this is kind of interesting. So the guy who started it, Nathan Latka, actually started his own SaaS company when he was in college at Virginia Tech. And he said he built it up to like a million dollars in ARR. And then he started getting calls from VCs. And he ended up taking VC money and getting really, really diluted and selling the company at like, you know, really bad terms. Like he, he admits it, right? So then he went on and he started talking to other founders and he started a podcast and just talking to SaaS founders every day. And then he realized, okay, a lot of these companies are considering taking on debt. And so he started writing his own checks like personally before starting this company and formalizing it. So I just thought it was interesting how, how he got here. That's you know, that's just me. <laughs> but um, I also think it's very interesting that they're seeing such a big jump in business. So if I may, he said the firm has deployed over $60 million in capital to 130 SaaS founders since launching in January 2020. Mm -hmm. The last 12 months alone, that's 50 million it's deployed. And more than half of that took place over the last four months. Is this the Nathan Lotka from getlotka.com? Probably. Interesting. Okay. You know him? I, I'm aware of him. <laughs> That's the podcast that he started. Yeah, that's it. That's yeah. it. Yeah, there's, I'm trying to not get sued. Uh, controversy about certain data collection practices involving certain companies and certain podcasts mm, that okay. I have heard from people about this person. 
Interesting. So. Good to know. And don't sue me because if you do, you're suing Yahoo and they're big. So <laughs> I had one question, I guess, a little bit about this alt financing movement, even mm-hmm. though it's like kind of like where I also nerd out and love. I was talking to an investor recently who said the only startups that are trying to raise right now are the ones that like need the money. And so there's kind of like this adverse selection of like yes. companies that are like struggling raise. I'm taking that with a grain of salt, but like, let's pretend that's reality fully. Does that mean debt financing rewards companies that are struggling even more? Or does it reward companies that are good enough to avoid venture right now, but not good enough to just bootstrap themselves? I struggle with the word reward there because presumably it's an economic activity lending essentially that is mutually beneficial. Yes. And it's not something that's given out on a non-merit basis to a large degree. If you mean does debt prove more useful for companies that might need capital because they're the lesser healthy startups, ergo adverse selection, venture capital issues, then yes, I think this type of financing does actually make more sense for them because it's probably cheaper, faster, okay. and less onerous mm-hmm. because the interest that you're going to pay is probably less bad than full ratchet. Yeah. And when I say rewards, I kind of even mean privilege in a way too, because yes, it both sides right. are benefiting, but like not everyone has the access. Yeah. And so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I think that's a really good point. In fact, FounderPath says it well, it's focused on bootstrapped and other companies doing at least 10,000 in monthly recurring revenue, with a typical company profile doing between one and five million in ARR. So, this is not really for the very struggling SaaS startup, right? Because they're not taking equity. So, they have to take bets on companies where they can see a steady stream of right. recurring revenue come in on a monthly basis. So, to your point, it is not for those that are trying to get there, right? It's those who are kind of already at a certain threshold. Debt is for people who can raise VC but don't really want to. And then VC is for people who need to raise anything and will show that if I'm making it a super simple argument. I'm sure someone will disagree. (laughs) Yeah, no, I think what we're trying to figure out here, and this is the reason why it isn't an easy kind of like simple sentence to say, which you got to tease around with it, is because debt became increasingly accessible during a venture capital boom. And then the venture capital boom stopped and we're still seeing new debt products built. And I don't think we really know yet who is taking the most advantage of what, how much capital startups have, and how many companies are actually short of money. And yes, Natasha, you've been covering the layoff beat, sadly, for a while, and you're getting tips about other issues at companies. It seems to me that the level of noise around startups struggling with cash issues is going up, but I don't think it's reached a fever pitch yet, so I don't really know how we can properly apportion what quality of companies pursuing what type of capital. That's a really fair thing. It's very nuanced, and I feel like that's the thing that VCs have said is missing, from everything is the nuance. And I say, give me the nuance then to that. You know what's not nuanced though? Bullet points. And you know who loves bullet points? Axios, Marianne. What's going on? (laughs) Yeah, so this week, chatter in the newsroom and all over Twitter was about Axios and according to the New York Times headline, agreeing to sell itself to Cox Enterprises for $525 million. Now, those of you listening are probably familiar with Axios and their smart brevity strategy of providing news in different sectors, including tech. So this was an interesting deal. I think a lot of us we're surprised by it. We're surprised by a couple of things. I guess the size of the investment being $525 million compared to the company's what projected 2022 revenue of more than $100 million. So I think we were all expecting a little bit more. And then just also going to, to Cox Enterprises. Alex, what did you think about that? Well, thoughts about both points. One, the dollar amount is at once impressive and at once a disappointment. Mm-hmm. And I have friends that work at Axios, and so I know I'm going to get a text about this. So. <laughs> We've had a lot of TC to Axios. 
A We've lot, had a lot of t- some. Uh, some more than I approve of, to be clear, Ryan, <laughs> <laughs> Ryan Lawler, MRD. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's right. She's now, well, we'll get to that in a second. Axios is a multi-part business. It has its flagship website, flagship newsletters. It has a technology business that I think separate to this deal as a subscription product and a local product. And so it's mm-hmm. done quite a lot of things to get to a half billion dollars in exit value. The Cox thing is very interesting because my only read there, Marion, actually answering your question at last mm-hmm. is that Cox has a local footprint in a lot of places. Mm -hmm. And so why not beef up that with some kind of in-house power? And Axios has done a great job expanding its kind of city-based newsletter approach around the country, not replacing dead, small, local papers that were critical for so long, but certainly backfilling the gap somewhat. So Mm -hmm. I think the price is a little lower than I'd hoped, but it's good to see a media company exit well. And I don't know anything about Cox, frankly, other than that people who have the internet don't like them. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I want to like just read how Axios approached it. Megan Rose Dickey and Nick Bastone do a Axios San Francisco newsletter, which is great and everyone should subscribe that can. But they said in their header, situational awareness, colon, we've been bought. Atlanta-based Cox Enterprises has agreed to buy a majority stake in Axios for $525 million, placing a big bet on the future of journalism. Indent, bullet point. What it means for you, nothing. Axios will retain editorial <laughs> control and this doesn't change the work we're doing. I mean, I love Axios' style and I feel like it was a really funny thing to see. The first thought I had is how is Axios going to like bullet point this? And of course, as every media organization wants and hopes and is difficult to do, it's to remain entire editorial control. I hope that they can and fingers crossed always. Yeah, no, I'm sure Axios will maintain editorial independence. What they may not control as much is editorial budgets. Mm. Right. Budgets do. Because. Yeah. Yeah. A, lot. a big deal. I mean. Cox is famous for its automotive and telecommunications business, not its funding of journalism, in, at least by my knowledge. I could be wrong about that. Please send your letters to ryan.lawler at axios.com. <laughs> but yeah, I think this deal puts the company at about 5x revenue for this year, Marianne, to your point. And I think it would have been 7 or 8x last year. I think the mm. price decrease is just strictly due to multiples compression around the, the world. But media has higher input costs than a lot of software, lower gross margins, lower exit values. I'll just say this. Shout out Axios. Founded a company, made a lot of noise, broke a lot of news, sold for a half billion. Cool. I love journalism. Very good. I can't knock that. It's Absolutely so good. not. Keep it up. I love it. What I can knock, though, is TikTok's parent in China buying a hospital group. And look, guys, we had this on the script and we were trying to, we go through the script before the show. We talk a little bit just to kind of, you know, feel it out. And none of us know what the hell is going on here, is my read. Natasha, I know ByteDance, the parent company of TikTok, does have some healthcare investments, but buying a hospital group seems to be a bit like Amazon buying the Washington Post or Whole Foods or whatever. Well, it's kind of like Amazon buying One Medical, which it just did. And Thank you. That's a much better example. <laughs> well, I- <laughs> That was the only reason. (laughs) (laughs) Whoops. All right. I mean, Amazon also just bought a robot company. Like they're doing everything. I will say only because Amazon bought One Medical recently did this make like a percent more sense. But Mm -hmm. as Rita from our team pointed out in her story, it's really common for internet giants in China and the US to dabble in the healthcare sphere. Like Tencent has apparently tried to open brick and mortar clinics. Alibaba and JD.com run online pharmacies. And so I agree where it's like on the outside, why is TikTok buying hospitals? And then if you like, I guess, make enough generalizations, internet company getting into healthcare, it makes more sense. I don't know if it's a stretch or not, honestly, but that's just kind of the argument we're seeing out there. 
Well, also the article says that this is not the first foray into healthcare for ByteDance. Mm, it started okay. in 2020. They bought a company that provided health information to the masses. And then it continued to grow, I think, buying another company that specializes in drug discovery and one that yeah. conducts DNA synthesis. Cool. Because you know what I love with my viral dancing videos is DNA synthesis. That <laughs> just hand in glove. <laughs> Natasha, going back to your point about these companies dabbling in healthcare, I have a hypothesis about why they make sense in the United States, yes. which is that the market size is so large that everyone who has an angle or a foothold in that space wants to expand because they see so much growth possibility there. Especially if you're a company with a history of operational excellence that has done quite a lot, you might think you can pull it off. That's why we saw, I think it was Amazon, JP Morgan, and Berkshire Hathaway mm -hmm. try to do some healthcare stuff, and that kind of failed. Now, the difference is that there's a wildly disparate amount of spend in China and U.S. when we think about per capita healthcare expenses. According to the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, a government agency, the United States spends around $12,500 per year per person on healthcare. That might be one or two years out of date, but it's close enough. And then China per, I think the World Health Organization is around 550. So obviously different purchasing powers are at play there. So it's not a great, perfect example, you know, to do apples to apples, but there's a much larger dollar-based healthcare opportunity in the United States per capita, which makes it seem more lucrative to me, but maybe mm. the same thing applies because there's more folks in China. True. Interesting. Yeah. I always wonder like why it hasn't worked before. And I don't know enough about healthcare and big tech intersecting to do that. But yeah, I guess with that data, especially I'm like, it does seem like an even weirder acquisition. Yeah. I don't know how big it is in terms of, oh, it's, I guess it's one and a half billion, but like in terms of their average yearly spend on acquisitions, but it feels material to their overall market cap. Totally. Maybe healthcare is profitable in China. Unlike <laughs> in the U S when every hospital group somehow has all the money in the world and yet no money at all. <laughs> right. Totally. Yeah. Well, I'll just say this. There's antitrust stuff going on in China. And maybe if you can't grow your tech business, you have to hard pivot into healthcare. Stranger things have happened. And <laughs> Natasha, the last thing we have in this section concerning essentially bets that are being made by companies large and small is a bet that doesn't seem to have paid off quite as we expected it to. Yeah. So I don't know if you guys remember when House first splashed onto the scene in 2019. It definitely caught my attention. It broke out as a VC-backed direct-to-consumer company that was all about selling low ABV or alcohol by volume aperitifs. Mm -hmm. It's more, it's stronger than a wine, but less than a hard liquor. And it's all about natural ingredients made and bottled in California. So I thought that the company was this really interesting and beautifully, honestly, branded mm -hmm. alternative to traditional alcohol. And they raised funding from all the big ones like Homebrew, Haystack, Kotu, Shrug, Work Life, Casey Neistat, Away co-founder Jen Rubio, and the CEO and co-founder Helena Price-Hambrick basically described them as the Glossier for alcohol. Mm -hmm. Fast forward, Glossier has had a ton of struggles, and this week House has two. The CEO, Helena, announced on Twitter that their Series A fell through last minute, so now they're up for sale. And, and it's after just, you know, a few years after launching. Yeah, I was surprised by this. Honestly, a few months back, I interviewed Helena as I, I was doing some judging for Hustle Fund and was really impressed by the company. Actually, I thought it was a novel concept that was unique and would have appeals. So I was a little surprised to hear this news, actually. Of all the D2C companies out there that I was aware of and that were not the biggest ones, there were Warby Parkers, the Allbirds, whatever, I thought House was the healthiest. Like yeah. it just, I saw people posting pictures of themselves drinking it that were not like part of the company. And frankly, Helena was very good at making noise and getting attention. And I thought it's a critical freaking thing for a DTC company. You need to have earned media, so. Totally. I mean, and you're not wrong by saying like, it felt like it was different than other DTC companies mm -hmm. because it did hit the dream threshold, as Helena told me in my interview, which is they crossed 10 million in revenue and they found a distribution 
distribution partner. Those are two things that are super hard to do. And especially for house, which can't sell on like Amazon because it's alcohol. That was kind of the milestone. Yeah, that helped them tee up for their series A. And then what happened from my understanding is that they hit these milestones. They were able to tee up for their series A and they landed the strategic partner, Constellation. And that helped them spend and go harder on distribution. Then Constellation Mm -hmm. last minute backed out, basically putting this company in a really tough spot where they couldn't afford. And if they were going to just self-fund on their operating cash flow, they would have had to make the decision a year ago. So kind of really hard to see it bet big on itself because it was told it could and then have to now go in reverse and fully sell. Something else I think is interesting and maybe a lot of people don't know is that a lot of VC firms have like a vice clause that prohibits them from backing companies like this one. So that also limited options for the company, I believe, in trying to raise capital. Totally. I mean, I listed some VCs at the top of this section that got their investment, but these were small checks. And I wouldn't be surprised if they were from the partners personally versus LP dollars. Mm -hmm. Don't know for a fact. But yeah, Helena said the big reason they had to go away from traditional VC at a certain point. She was fundraising for four years to get that Series A. Oh, yeah. Can you imagine? It's like you're spending your entire college career trying to get one grade and then having the professor decline to give a grade at the end of the uh, period. I know. It's like, here's all this proof and here's all my milestones. And so, I mean, one rumor or suggestion from a VC on Twitter was basically, we could see Constellation, now that it's up for sale, try and buy house. And so basically get it to the end of its runway and then buy house. I mean, that would be a really tough move. And they haven't responded to requests for comment yet, but definitely something on the table now that it's going through this like self-chosen bankruptcy. I appreciate her sharing her story on Twitter though. And I think it's important for founders to do that so others are aware of their experiences. And, you know, just I think it takes courage. So kudos to Elena. Wish her wish her the best. Okay, so I have some theory crafting I want to put in here. So while we were talking, I was like, distribution is going to be really hard for any D2C alcohol brand. Okay, so why not just have alcohol delivery companies make their own booze? Like I was thinking about, you know, Drizzly, right? Why doesn't Drizzly just make like Drizzly bourbon? or bourbon or whatever you want to call it. <laughs> and then they have their built-in distro and they can promote it on their own app. And then I was like, Drizzly should buy what's left of house. Ah, but Uber already bought Drizzly. So uh. Uber bought Drizzly. Drizzly buys house. Helena is the next CEO of Uber. You heard it here <laughs> oh first. Oh my God. They're, I mean, I don't even want to follow up with it. That's perfect. <laughs> oh my um, God. <laughs> the, I know if they get to the last section, but I wanted to say like, yeah. somehow the common line between Axios, ByteDance, and house is that we're seeing companies diversify their ability to exit, ability to grow, ability to return to investors. And feels just like a lot of reactions happening right now beyond the comment, I'm going to raise the next round, which I think is just such a different story and is kind of new practice for us on equity in a way it feels natural to talk about but Mm -hmm. it's been a while since like we're not just talking about dollars and deals right yes last year these companies all would have probably raised another round and then this year we're seeing very different outcomes much the same over at SoftBank which put so much capital to work for so long and this year is decelerating its outflow of funds (sighs) and that's because a lot of its bets have well soured or struggled. And the story that we're talking about this week is essentially SoftBank's earnings from the second quarter. What we have now seen is that it has posted its largest ever quarterly loss, which was $24.5 billion. The company's vision fund profits have essentially all been consumed now, and the vision fund is roughly break even on a gross basis after surrendering a lot of gains. And so to me, like this is the come down from the last couple of years. And it's painful for SoftBank, but it doesn't actually feel that shocking to me given the prices that the company was always willing to pay for companies like Klarna and so forth mm-hmm. that are now worth less. Yeah, I mean, SoftBank went on investment spree last year. It's, it's admitted that and it just went crazy. I can't, I mean, it felt like almost every deal I was covering had SoftBank, SoftBank, SoftBank in it. Let's not forget they invested in better.com as well. So 
So I got to stick them in the back with a knife there. Yeah, <laughs> they didn't learn from WeWork, I guess. But $24.5 billion in a quarter is just, I mean, damn, that's a lot of money. And I, I don't know, I just, I feel like it's, it's just really sobering. And first thing I'm going to have to say also is it kind of pisses me off when I think about all the poverty in the world and like where all these billions of dollars could have gone to help people in need. It just kind of pisses me off in a way. Sorry that this money's just being thrown around so frivolously. And we're just talking about $24 billion in losses like it's nothing. Okay. It's a over. lot of money. It's a lot of money. It's, I mean, it's, it's also something that I think comes up every so often within like the broader venture conversation, which is like this is what we're doing. And I've loved seeing kind of a focus on mission-focused new VC firms and the emerging fund managers, yeah, focusing on like climate or like stuff like that feels a little better. But I mean, what a dramatic fall from grace. Alex, I think I saw a line in your piece that I really liked, which was the vision fund was always betting on vision. Do you feel like, Mm, mm -hmm. is this the end of vision-based financing? (laughs) Well, I mean, okay, I'm going to make an unfair comparison here. And if you're working for Andreessen Horowitz, this is not directly aimed at you. But like, remember when, when Mark wrote that big thing about let's go build, where are the factories in the sky? Why aren't we colonizing Venus? Whatever. And then they just put all their money into like Axie Infinity. And we're all like, wait a minute, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The SoftBank Vision Fund pitch was like AI coming together with all sorts of big data stuff. And then they funded like the pizza company that made pizzas in a truck that didn't work out. And there was always kind of a gap, I think, between the vision and the execution. I think the company, sorry, the group, I suppose, loved to make bets on founders that were willing to push boundaries. And we saw this with, as Marianne pointed out, WeWork. I think we saw it with Oyo. We also saw it in a strange way with Didi. Mm-hmm. Didi was, Ooh. of course, the Uber of China, if you will, ended up buying Uber's Chinese operations after a long price war. And then Didi went public in the US, kind of, a little hard to tell, not with full approval from the Chinese government, and then was beaten with the regulatory stick until it was a pulp on the floor. And a big chunk of SoftBank's losses, if I recall the the charts from their earnings report, came from essentially declines in the value of their Didi stake. So the same founders they bet on because they were willing to push the boundaries often ended up tripping over mm-hmm. boundaries later on. Right. And I think that's kind of the story of Vision Fund. I have like a, a small question on SoftBank and I know we have to jump then to Coinbase, but like what's the comeback story here? Is it just them raising another fund or them like doing something? Yeah, I don't know how a VC makes a comeback beyond raising another fund. So I imagine that's it. Also, didn't the news just come out, was it yesterday about them selling their stake in Alibaba? I mean, Alex, help me out here financially. What did they do? Because it just got them like, I don't know, what, 30 some billion dollars in cash to help them stay afloat, right? Well, yeah. So SoftBank is many things. It's a conglomerate. It's a telco. It's one man's investing slush pile. It's also one of the most efficient and amazing fundraisers of all time. Like the company is really good at getting money to invest and to spend and shout out to Masayoshi San for always being good with that. It's a key skill for a CEO. When it comes to the Alibaba stake, I'm just amazed that we're still seeing foreign companies holding on to sufficient Alibaba stakes as to generate this kind of capital for themselves. So somehow take me from SoftBank to Coinbase because we're seeing another version of losses happening pretty blatantly. Yeah, so my take here, Natasha, is that a lot of the forces that we saw that pumped up SoftBank's confidence in its investing strategy, the huge markups we saw in the venture world, were part and parcel of the 2020-2021 boom in venture capital and startup activity. And at the same time, we saw a boom in consumers investing and trading. That also helped Coinbase grow. And now this year, we're seeing them both struggle quite a bit. Coinbase reported earnings this week. Natasha, I'm curious, what were the standout numbers to you? 
Ooh, okay. Well, I mean, I think there's two ones. Obviously, the sharp revenue decline, they went from 2.033 billion to 802.6 million in revenue, and that's a pretty insane drop. And then the other actually, which I want to get your take on, which was that share-based compensation costs rose from 189.3 million to 391.5 million over a year. Does that just mean they're they're treating their employees better because their stock is struggling? Or am I missing something else? Well, I think really what we're seeing there is the fact that from last year, Coinbase has dramatically scaled its employee base. And when you hire oh, new employees, you offer them RSUs or stock options. Now, the question is, how sustainable is that? Because Coinbase is already relatively levered. Don't forget, they have, I think, north of $3 billion in long-term and convertible debts, which is fine. They raised that money when capital was cheap. It was actually pretty freaking smart of them. Yeah. To do at the time. Oh they my got God. to raise it at like 1% or 2%. It was being crazy. It was very well-timed. The CFO suite at Coinbase, shout mm-hmm. out. <laughs> but when they're spending, you know, 390, call it $400 million a quarter on share-based compensation and their market cap is somewhere around 21, 22 billion, if my memory holds up, you can kind of see that they're diluting their stock or their kind of equity base mm-hmm. materially. This isn't like mm-hmm. Microsoft, which is worth, you know, two trillion, giving out four hundred million dollars a quarter in equity. This is gonna be worth, according to Google Finance, one point sorry, nineteen point eight billion. So to me, it's a lot of money. Nice. The operating losses are large. The trading revenues are down. The subscription income hasn't replaced everything yet. It's just kind of a tough moment. I mean, just like as we look at all the numbers, I know you, Jacqueline and Anita went through the earnings live. What is the vibe check, if I can, on Coinbase's entire quarter? That's actually probably the right question to ask. And though I do think we are all now abusing vibe check a little bit more than we should, and I am pointing the vigor mostly at myself, not at you, Natasha, to be clear, because <laughs> I've been doing like... What's going on in Atlanta? Let's get a startup vibe check. Yeah. And my team's like, okay. <laughs> it's, like, oh. it's just like a <laughs> but, casual way to be like, can you look into this, please? Tell me what to does think. Does it just mean what's going on in simpler <laughs> language? It's like, what's going okay. on, temp check, vibe check. Okay. What's going on, Alex? <laughs> the what's going on, temp check, vibe check of Coinbase is that they are projecting a feeling of calm. They're projecting, been here before, seen a downturn, know what we're doing. And even more than that, we know how to leverage a crypto winter to be stronger the next time the seasons change. Now, the question is, does that convert to investors? Do they like it? Stocks up off the bottoms? Maybe. But I, I think the company is going to have a hard Q3, given what they said about July. And that means that, you know, we're not going to be seeing Coinbase getting back to year-over-year growth for some time. And I wonder if that's going to impact hiring and employee retention and so forth. Okay, well, that cements that we're definitely ending every episode with a what's going on temp check, vibe check. That was amazing. <laughs> and I, I think this is the end of my equity run. I can you I, not scare people? I lost like, time off. <laughs> I think people oh, are going to think that you're done with equity. No, I mean, I mean for a week. I'm going to be <laughs> three episodes. Alice on vacation. This is the end of my chapter of equity. I, okay, look, the, the reason why I'm going on vacation is that I'm out of brain, as you just heard. Yes, no. I'm so excited for you to go on vacation. You're going to be missed. We will hold down the equity for it. And I'm actually, I'm not even going to say, text me if there's anything that you want us to cover. Don't even consider work. No, I'm not. I will only text you like silly memes or totally non-work related things. I'm going to be offline. Like I'm not bringing my work laptop. I'm not bringing my work phone. I'm not even going to have access to work systems. Yes. Good for you. So yeah. Otherwise I'll just be on piano checking our subscription data all the time. And that's not healthy, but thank you guys so much for not just taking over next week, but also for making equity so strong that way. When uh, one of us does leave for a bit, everything's fine. Yeah. We'll miss you though. You're all the best. I will miss you guys. But don't worry, guys. Equity's back on Monday, Wednesday, Friday with Natasha and Marianne and maybe some special friends along the way. Thank you both very much. Thank you, Grace, for putting the show together. Thank you, Kel, for editing. And I'll talk to you guys in a couple weeks. Have fun. Bye, everyone. 